It's the How Games Make Money podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Grubb from GamesBeat.com. This is the show where we talk to people working in and around games and ask them, how does this business work? Is it all just loot boxes? New episodes come out each Monday. On this episode, I'm talking to Modern Vintage Gamer, or MVG. He's a YouTuber and game developer who works with Limited Run Games and Night Dive Studios. And we talk about that weird amalgamation of job titles. But I also speak to MVG about homebrew and how security has shaped gaming since the NES. It's a really good conversation. We'll get to all of that in just a second. But first, thank you for listening. You can get more from me at gamesbeat.com. Email the podcast at jeff.grub at gmail.com with the subject line, how games make money. Or reach out on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Grubb. The podcast is at HGMM Show. I'm also deciding to go ahead with the Patreon uh, that I talked about last episode. My plan is to potentially offer episodes early, but that that might be too much work. I'll have to weigh that. Uh, I, I do kind of all of this by myself, so it's uh, it is a lot of work. But I definitely plan to do patron exclusive episodes where I just kind of I talk to you guys, I give you guys my thoughts, my insights on, on what's happening, answer questions. But I also want to give access to a community Discord. Uh, I have a couple that I'm already running. I might use one of those, uh, but I also might use the GameSpeed Discord. I'll have to talk uh, to GameSpeed about that and see what they think. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to start out with a small goal of just getting 20 patrons. If, if we can hit that, I'll be thrilled and it'll, it'll make it really easy to continue doing the show. Okay, with that all out of the way, let's get to MVG. All right, and joining me now is MVG. Go ahead and say hi to all the good people out there. What's going on, everyone? Thanks for having me on, Jeff. It's uh, It's awesome to be here. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm uh, I'm excited to have you on. You you, you are a, a less conventional guest than I usually have. I want to like just kind of talk about a bunch of different topics with you. Normally, I have someone on and I just like just talk about their job, uh, and and we'll do that. And I guess you know we should start there. Like, what what do you tell people your job is? Because you have a few, right? Oh my god, man, that's that's a hard question. I <laughs> I do all sorts of things. I I always like to dabble in different things, but. As someone who has a game development background, uh, I work in the games industry, but I also am a full-time YouTuber as well. So I'm kind of juggling both of those things at the same time. And sometimes, you know, they kind of co-mingle with each other because I do do videos on development topics and interesting stuff about, you know, how things work from a development side of the house. But, you know, it's also a very interesting kind of, you know, cross-spectrum of work that I do across those two industries, I guess. And, and I guess just for my own curiosity, how long have you been doing it? Seems like you've been in this uh, the, in the development side for a long time. And then when did you start doing YouTube? Yeah, so development. I mean, I've been I've been working as a dev pretty much since I graduated from college, but I was not necessarily in game development. I only recently only got into that probably in the last oh really in the last twelve months. Like from a you know from a professional aspect i mean before that i was doing homebrew stuff on different consoles but yeah i mean i've been writing code since the 90s and um you know the youtube stuff really kicked off even though i rolled the channel back in 2007 which was a long time ago i only got serious about it maybe in 2015 2016 when you know i got monetized and i thought well maybe there's a chance here that i can I can actually, you know, make a little bit of money doing this rather than just, you know, um, not, not making anything on the platform. So I kind of, yeah, did, did that as well. And and that's obviously grown into something a lot bigger now where it's become a lot more professional and it's, you know, it's part of my, you know, my, my work, right? I mean, that's what I do 
as well week in week out to you know to make money to you know to feed the family and all that stuff so yeah i mean both of those things are a big part of you know what i do Yeah, and so, yeah, so like this is why I'm I'm happy to have you on because I feel like we can go in any one of a number of directions. But uh, let's um, let, let's let's actually start kind of in in the past. Let's start with like the homebrew stuff because I'm uh, I think you have a, you have a lot of experience with this sort of thing. Uh, and I guess let, let's start let's start with you personally. Was this um was it ever a money making venture or was it always like a hobby until until it became like the YouTube thing? It was always a hobby. So for me, it's I've always been that. You know, I was always that kid, right, that was growing up that wanted to know how things worked. So, you know, when I was like eight years old, I took apart a radio to figure out how it all worked and I couldn't put it back together, of course, because yeah, you, know, you never know how to do that. But so I, I've always had that analytical mind about, well, how do things work? You know, like if I watch a video game, even even today, you know, like I'm playing Ghost of Tsushima and I just look at some of the effects and think, man, how does that stuff work? And I've always been curious about how things work so you know the homebrew stuff was really it wasn't for money at all i mean it was really about i wanted to play super nintendo games on my original xbox and i had the skills to do it because like i said i come from a you know a a, a software development background so i thought well i can do this myself and, and and give this a go and see how it works so it was always passion projects you know there was really never any money involved and, you know, I mean, look, there are some projects I did along the way where maybe someone would donate uh, $1,000 or give me give me some money as encouragement. But, I mean, it was never anything that was, you know, work. So, I mean, I guess through that time then, were you just – you were making money as like a day job as a software developer and this was the stuff you were you, – you'd go home, go home at night, take apart the Xbox and try to figure out how to get the emulators running on there? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's an escape from your nine-to-five kind of hustle, right? So, mm-hmm. you're doing some cool stuff that you really get you excited about, about you know, um, consoles and, and, and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it was absolutely a – um, you know, a, a side hustle, I guess you'd call it. And obviously, that stuff is now uh, giving you a backbone where you are using this vast uh, library of knowledge you have in your head about how this stuff works to create content for YouTube. Yeah. And, and, and does it help in the development job now as well, like with limited run games or whatever? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've done I've done sort of some videos that that talk about emulation techniques. Um, so for example, with LRG, I'm working on one of the up and coming projects, which is Shante that WaveForward will be bringing out. Uh, I think it's in September. So, you know, some of the videos that I've done actually talk about some, some interesting emulation ideas about like how, how safe states work and how, you know, that rewind functionality where you hold down a button and it kind of rewinds the game in real time for you. So things like that, you know, there's definitely that that cross, you know, pollination of, of topics. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, for me, YouTube is is interesting because I don't just focus on, on one thing. You know, I don't just do, I don't talk about just, you know, current video games or, or old retro games. So I, I kind of mix it up in a way that just makes it, kind of interesting to me and hopefully you know the viewers get get some uh, enjoyment out of it which it seems like they are yeah i i mean i'm i'm definitely one of them i always i'm always excited when you cover a topic you do it do it really well i think um uh, in particular, I, I, I'm always interested when you talk about uh, uh, the security measures on consoles and 
And when I was kind of looking back recently, and I think there was a, there's another podcast like American invention stories or something like that. And they were talking about how, uh, after the, after the big crash in 83, Mm -hmm. Nintendo came along and, and one of the key features that like people don't really, you know, as a gamer, you weren't really thinking about, but it was really important was the security on the, on the NES so that Nintendo could control who was putting games out so they could uh, limit the amount of software on shelves and have some sort of quality control. And, and, and as you're like, like looking into how security works, uh, are, do you see that the sort of like how, uh, how it like has defined the way gaming has existed since this moment in 1985 or whatever? Yeah, I think so. I mean, y- you look at video game companies and publishers, they really take this stuff a lot more seriously than they used to. And mm-hmm. there's been a lot of, I'll say, failures along the way. But I think now in the last maybe five years or so, I mean, ever since you know the current generation of consoles like the Xbox One and the PS4 and the Switch, even though the Switch was easily dispatched security-wise probably about right. three weeks after it came out. But crypto, you know, cryptography is such an important part of any kind of system these days where it's it's almost unbreakable to get in. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely been a lot of push from not, not only from software but also from hardware to, to get their systems secured as best they can. And, of course, you know, things like games as a service where you're, you're always connecting to to some server somewhere. Otherwise, you don't have the experience that you would normally get, right? So, you know, if you can't, you know, if you can't hook into that server, then you can't play the game because there's content on the other side kind of waiting for you to, to use. Those types of, of things as well have really become a lot more front and center in video games, as we know. So, yeah, I mean, I think the the original days of Nintendo with, with the, you know, security lockout chips that they brought out, Kind of set the, the set the path for you know most developers, publishers, hardware manufacturers to really sit down and take notice that you know we can't really be having these bootlegs of of hardware mm-hmm. coming out because it's just going to really hurt our business. And you know, to Nintendo's credit, I mean they've had they've had their ups and downs security wise. You know, especially you know kind of in the early two thousands, but. They've done a lot of work to, you know, to get where they are. And I know that, you know, the Switch was a bit of a misstep for them, but they've also very quick to correct their mistakes as well. So, I mean, I think as time goes by, we're just going to see security just become so much more, you know, important. And it already is, but there's also going to be just a lot more focused on it. And I think systems are going to get a lot more secure as well. I mean, we haven't really heard any stories about the PS4 and the Xbox One getting hacked because normally when there is an exploit that's found, it's usually patched pretty quickly and in real time. So security now is a lot more important than, you know, than it used to be back in, back in the old days. Yeah, and it, it does seem like it's this um, sort of shadow design element to like the way you described uh, uh, always online games. And, and, and you know, th- those things are rising in popularity in part because people actually do like those kinds of games more a lot of times, or at least the people that like those games tend to spend more money. And so we get a lot of online multiplayer games that require a connection to a server. Uh, But, but also, you know, the incentive is there for developers to figure this stuff out, right? Because those things are inherently more secure because they control the content on their side and and you just can't get to it. It's also probably why um, I think uh, Google thinks Stadia might be so appealing to, to people, at least developers, because like, 
it's all on their servers. It's impossible to hack, uh, you know, at least, you know, it, it's not impossible, but, you know, almost impossible to hack. So, um, right. uh, it, like, you could see, like, how it uh, how this desire to control the experience and control the delivery mechanisms is shaping the way that we get games. Yeah. Um, and, and there's it's just going to be more of that going forward, right? Yeah, man. I mean, you, you touched on it there. You know, they control it. And, look, even if there was some kind of entry point into Stadia, that because they control, they literally control the hardware on their end, then they can just, you know, they can patch it pretty much immediately. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that aspect is something that we're going to continue to see. And, of course, you know, Game Pass and, and xCloud and all that stuff is is really going to be something that becomes a lot more focused, you know, over the next generation. In terms of like the ho- homebrew scenes going forward, like what is the um, what's the health of that? Is it uh, is there still a- as much happening now as it was happening back when you were like in the heyday of the Xbox? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I've been kind of keeping an eye on the Nintendo Switch scene, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean the scene seems to be just thriving. I mean, it's it's never really gone away. Uh, even though, like I said, that the PS4 and the Xbox One don't really have the same level of commitment from a homebrew capacity, because you know those systems. Uh, I mean, there are ways to 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 run homebrew on a PS4. The Xbox One, there's the there's the developer mode. So Microsoft kind of just took that that out of the equation, which I think is interesting that they did that. You know, because they offer yeah. that twenty dollar development mode where you basically just pay pay your money and you have and you have access to the hardware so you can you can write your own homebrew you know albeit from a legal legal standpoint so you know i think that's interesting that microsoft decided they would do that and and ultimately just kind of you know stop stop from piracy and stop from hacking the system but um i mean going back to the switch yeah there's there's a lot out there and it's interesting that that we see you know these remasters and remakes of games you know coming out so for example i mean one that comes to mind this year was we saw Doom 64 come out earlier this year, but um, I know that there's already been homebrew versions of Doom 64 and Doom 3. They've been out for about two years now. So there's there's always going to be that homebrew alternative that costs you pretty much nothing other than some time trying to figure out where to download this stuff from. And hopefully you can find a copy of your game to get your data files from. And, you know, you, you have, I don't want to say the exact same experience because, you know, you lose things like, networking and uh, matchmaking and all that stuff. Usually the homebrew equivalents are single player experiences because, you know, connecting to a server while you're running on a on a modified Nintendo Switch, for example, it's probably not the smartest thing to do. You'll probably get your console right. banned pretty quickly. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that scene is is still very much active and alive. And it's one of those things you don't really hear about un- unless there's some big announcement or, or someone comes up with, you know, some amazing piece of homebrew that you know that people just kind of you know uh, completely in awe of you know so it's it's always there and and there's there's definitely um forums that you can check out to to see what's going on but yeah i mean the scene is active and ongoing and i think it's it's going to continue i mean i think you know when the next generation of systems come out we'll see uh, a push to see if we can get um, you know, homebrew and, and and unsigned code running on those environments as well. I don't know if it's going to get anywhere, but it's certainly, you know, not going to stop people from, you know, trying to, uh, to, to you know, to, to break into the system. 
Yeah, you're um the point there about uh about Microsoft adding the developer mode. It's like I, I kind of forgot about that. That is kind of where a lot of that stuff went, and we even saw stuff. I think like um. I don't. I can't remember if it was RetroArch or or something similar, but it ended up on like the Microsoft Store, and you could add it and then install it on an Xbox. And I don't know if it ever actually got fully up and running, but I know like it was like right there. And it's like uh, you could see, you could almost see uh, Microsoft thinking about like why, like why are we trying to stop this stuff? We should just try to funnel it into our store where we can have control of it, so people like want to put their effort there. They see the potential to make money, and then if there's something legally shady, we can sort of just yeah. uh, stop it at that point. Um, do you expect? more of that or is that just too much of a headache for for a company like Microsoft or Sony It's a good question Jeff I mean if you look in look back in history and think about the PlayStation and 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 the Xbox right I mean the Xbox got the original Xbox got hacked pretty much in the first couple of weeks mm-hmm. and although Microsoft was not happy about it Bill Gates was quoted as saying you know we we need to tap into these people and figure out you know how they're doing all this really cool stuff. We need to give them a platform to to make some some cool ideas. And if you look at the Xbox 360, they came up with the um, the XNA uh, stuff they mm-hmm. did for a while, which sadly they took away. And over on the PlayStation side, you know, Linux ran on the PS2, so there was always that ability to to write code on on a console and and kind of hack around and and write some write some programs or write some games. And obviously on the PS3. There was Linux that ran on there as well, which was very famously taken away, which you know <laughs> resulted in class action lawsuits and and what have you. But I these- think I bought a drink with my um, with my check. <laughs> oh, yeah. you got a check? Oh, awesome, good for you. I, don't, yeah, I never yeah, got you. I never got a check. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm still salty about it. But yeah. Um, yeah. I think um, you know these these big hardware companies they've always wanted to give people some freedom, but in a sandbox, you know, like in a in a kind of real tightly tightly or tightly knit sandbox and i think you know the developer mode is just kind of the next iteration of that and even though i heard about i did hear about retro arch as well i think ultimately microsoft has the final say because what what from what i understand i don't know if it actually ever got onto their kind of their microsoft app store you had to kind of sideload it um if you had a developer enabled xbox so it was kind of just kind of sneaking the program in. So I don't know if they actually ever approved that going onto their app store. Right. I could be wrong about that, of course, but uh, that, that was kind of my my understanding. But, you know, I, I think hardware manufacturers, um, Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo, they've always, you know, wanted to allow people to, to you know, to, to write games on their systems. But, you know, it's very much they just take very small baby steps, you know, like I would expect developer mode to be on the Xbox Series X. I think that initiative would probably continue. Sony, on the other hand, haven't really done anything for a while, like I said, since the PS3. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's there's always in- other incentives to to get, you know, to write games on consoles. There's obviously, you know, the independent uh, developer option as well. And on the Switch, for example, there's pretty cheap and easy ways to become a registered Nintendo developer and you know, become an indie developer. So I think you know these companies that they're, they're they're trying different things. I think right now Microsoft has has the has the edge on both Sony and Nintendo. I think Sony's gone back to their old ways of it's just about games. We don't care about anything else. Which look, it's worked for them for a long time. I'm definitely not knocking them, but I think you know Microsoft has always been a little more open to letting people experiment with their hardware. 
you've established your YouTube channel. You have you have this presence as a as an on a, as an expert on a lot of these matters, uh, and now you're kind of getting into game development. Uh, I guess how did that first start? Uh, w- like when people come to talk to you about this sort of thing, like what kind of help are they looking for? Yeah, so I'll, the way it got started actually was with my with my homebrew work. So it all went down about two years ago when when I got a switch, I was messing around with it and I got it I got it modded pretty quickly and there was a homebrew development environment, development kit that you could download, which was it's hundred percent completely legal, contains no proprietary Nintendo code. And I was just kind of messing around with it, seeing what I could do with it. And I remember um, one particular day, I stumbled across the uh, the reverse engineering source code of Diablo, which is one of my favorite games growing up on the PC. So I was like, wow, I'm going to see if I can port this to the Switch. And I, I ended up getting it on the Switch in about, oh, about a week and a half, two weeks. I had it up and running. And I remember um, Kotaku picked up so I made a video on it and then Kotaku saw my video and they picked up the story and they kind of ran the story on their website. So it was really the homebrew stuff that got me recognized, you know, by both limited run games and night dive studios. Um, it wasn't until much later when um, they reached out and asked, Hey, would you be interested in helping out with some development work that we have, you know, with their, with their different uh, in the respective companies but yeah, that was kind of what kind of kickstarted it all. And for me, that was was really, really cool because I always wanted Jeff to get into the industry, but I never really knew kind of the right path to take because, you know, what is what is the path into the games industry? Like, mm-hmm. do you go to college and, and, and graduate? Well, I did that, right? But I did that in computer science, but I did that and I just kind of worked regular kind of IT jobs, you know, writing business software. So, you know, I never really knew where to start as far as getting into game dev and I didn't really have the the appropriate connections. So, you know, YouTube and the the Diablo port on the Switch was really what got me recognized. And, you know, it was something that I was I was very flattered, you know, to to be asked because even though I've got like 25 plus years of writing software experience, I've never written games before, so you know this was a, a whole whole new ballpark for me, and and uh, it's it's been it's been a fun ride so far for sure. When I'm watching your videos, it, it feels like you must have been making games for forever because the, the, uh, <laughs> the I mean just like the way you break down how uh, I think uh, I was thinking of this when I was watching your video on like how Game Boy graphics works and then right. Game Boy Color and Game Boy Advance and I'm like this is incredible I'm like listening to it with uh, my uh, YouTube Premium account and I'm like it's in my pocket I'm like well I got to get the video out and actually watch this because there's so many cool things happening on the screen as well but I'm like this is so intricate and he seems to have a full grasp on on how all these things work is that stuff you just you you picked up as part of your hobby picked up recently just because you're uh, interested in making these videos or is this stuff that you've known for a long time and and just just by happenstance like how how do you acquire all this knowledge most of it i've known for a long time and you know for me i never really know what's going to connect with my audience i I mean i have a fair idea what i think is going to do well but i I don't know and i think if you ask any youtuber out there what they think is going to be you know a hit video their next video I, I think they'd be lying because there's always that uncertainty about, you know, is this something that, you know, is going to connect with my with my fans and, and my audience. So the the Game Boy stuff, yeah, I've known about for years, right? I mean, I've known about that pretty much since 
I was dabbling with emulation, you know, back in like 2001, 2002. So I just felt like, you know, it's interesting to tell these stories about old hardware because, you know, you think about the Game Boy and you think, wow, that that was a cool system. I loved the Game Boy, but man, it was so limited. It only had four colors and it, you know, it wasn't really that great that the sound was kind of tinny and, and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and everything. But if you look closer, if you kind of take, literally take the cover off and dig into that hardware, it's, it's quite sophisticated and quite technically advanced, even though they use really simple off the shelf, you know, pieces to, to make that, that system work. And I think for me, that's really what's fascinating about about, you know, consoles and hardware and not just not just the old stuff, even even the new stuff. But the old stuff, you know, for me is what I really get into because I think every system has an interesting story to tell. If you kind of look underneath, you know, you can see what, what was going on in the mindset of the people that were making these systems at the time. And, you know, the Game Boy, for example, you know, it just has four colors, but man, you could do so, so much with those four colors. I mean, you could do these amazing effects and even, you know, Dylan Cuthbert was getting 3D games running on, on, you know, a one megahertz, you know, Game Boy, you know, with four colors. I mean, some of the things that developers were doing on this stuff was, was absolutely mind blowing. And I really just wanted to illustrate, you know, um, you know, how, how great the hardware was, even though it was very limited. Yeah, I think I find myself drawn to this stuff right now because uh, I, modern hardware is great. There's a lot of cool stuff happening. I'm, I'm, you know, as interested as anyone in ray tracing and how, like how AMD is going to approach ray tracing compared to NVIDIA. Uh, but there was a lot more of that, like uh, diversion in how uh, you would approach making games uh, back then. They're, like consoles were very different. Uh, there wasn't just a one size fit all approach, and and so. Going back and actually learning the details of how those how how those different systems worked in different ways, uh, it, it's really fascinating, and it's it's also like okay, this is like how people develop their taste over time because they were playing primarily on one console or another, and 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 so you had a you know the PlayStation was so much better at running games faster, and maybe that's why you have a certain taste going forward or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and, but now it's like you know if if one of the systems can run it, like you could even like eventually get it running on the switch if you just turn down the, the settings far enough um <laughs> yeah i guess the question here would be like do you find modern hardware as interesting not really i mean i i hate to be a downer but it's all kind of x86 based and it's all it's all kind of the same architecture you know like i think the last major deviation was like the cell processor on the ps3 but even that right it was power pc and and the 360 had a, a very, very similar PowerPC Xenon processor, but the cell was something completely different. I think for me, that was probably the last major kind of diversion in hardware, you know, between systems. Now, obviously the Switch, you know, they do their own thing yes. with with with, a, with um, Arm, the Tegra yeah. X1, yeah, with Arm. But yeah, I mean, both Sony and, and Xbox, Microsoft, they've been pretty much just sitting on the same architecture you know since 2013 which it's a little unfortunate for me and it does take a lot of that excitement and mystery out of those systems but you know there's always cool things about about the new hardware as well that um that i think is interesting but yeah i mean the older stuff is is why i like it so much because you know every system every console that came out had something unique and interesting about it and you know and i think 
it all started, like you said, from from like the days of the NES and the Game Boy. I mean, they kind of were the pioneers of of interesting, you know, and 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 really awesome, you know, hardware in their systems, you know. You know, I, I can look at the picture of the PS5 when they first announce it and kind of stare at it for a little bit. And you're like, okay, I think I understand exactly what's happening here, why they built it this way. And uh, just knowing the specs, like, okay, they're dealing with a lot of heat. It's like, it's very, um, it's predictable. And it, I, I do think this kind of can come across as like, oh, we're bummed out about next-gen systems. And it's not necessarily that. It's just that... Um, Going back and finding the way the ways that these older systems worked so differently was just uh, and the way that developers found their ways around the limitations was always so exciting. And every time I hear a new story about that stuff, it's like, man, people are so creative and 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 so smart and and they just and they squeeze the most out of these things way beyond what anyone ever expected like when the game boy came out in 1989 or whatever no one was expecting some of the things that would eventually happen there and it's just kind of here um i I think we know what to expect and so it is a little bit less exciting yeah for sure and i think you know if you ask me what my my favorite system right now is it's the switch because i mean the switch is a great system you know in its own right there's there's so much good about it but Hardware wise, it's a complete departure from it's a it's a complete departure from the Wii U, and obviously from Sony and Microsoft. So having that that kind of Tegra X One, even though it's been basically cut in half as far as clock speed, mm-hmm. is an interesting you know way to to make a system. But you know, I think there's been a lot of really good and 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 quite you know, impressive ports that have come out for that system. And as developers get more, you know, up to date and and to grips with the APIs and, and how things work, I think we're going to see more of those things. I mean, for me right now, the Switch has, has been the one that's that's kind of impressed me the most. I mean, with ports like The Witcher 3, obviously, and and Doom, uh, Doom, Doom uh, 2016, and, and obviously Doom Eternal that's coming. I mean, those types of things have been, you know, very interesting and unique development that's been happening as well. So for me, you know, I'm probably going to be talking about those on a video in about seven or eight years from now, you know, how, <laughs> how the Witcher three was done on the switch, you know, and, and stuff like that. Cause I definitely think, the, the the switch has some interesting you know stories to tell. I think people that play those games on those systems now and haven't played it anywhere else are going to have really fond memories of the way those games look. Just the uh, the, the crunch down version. It's it's got a lot of character, uh, and it's it's of course it's not the ideal way to play these things, but it, it does have a lot of character. I mean, your point about the the switch being very interesting right now, it, it, as far as like all the consoles available on the market at the moment, absolutely, because it does feel like it is. It, it's more future proof in a way, just because it does feel like we are eventually going to be moving towards an ARM based future. X eighty eighty six isn't going to go anywhere, but it does feel like you know we see Apple switching to to, to ARM and. And I, I doubt that they're going to be the last ones kind of like thinking about that way as, as like as the future of, of their uh, their hardware platforms. Um, and so Nintendo already being in a, in a position to t- sort of take advantage of, of this, you know, of a risk style chip. Um, it, it could keep it could keep them like really competitive as, as Sony and Microsoft start looking around and being like, OK, we've sort of stretched x86 as far as we can on a home platform. What are we going to do next? Uh, 
and they might be uh, stuck a little bit when they have to like figure out that transition and uh nintendo won't have to so uh i, I don't know I'm, I'm i'm excited for the switch uh, for the switch's future i'm also excited to see what nintendo does next uh, do you i mean is there any doubt in your mind that they stick with like the switch style thing going forward because to me i'm like this is a guarantee they're just going to do something more like this next time there's no doubt in my mind at all i think i think whatever comes next and look whatever comes next could be a while away right i mean yeah i agree you know it, we keep hearing 2022 maybe but really i mean it could no. be could be 5 years right since mm-hmm. we see a new switch system or a, a successor to the switch but yeah i think they'll stick with a a very similar design that, than what they have i mean it's printing money for them right now let's be honest you know both the hardware and and the software so yeah i mean why why would you deviate away from that they they finally struck gold you know after the Wii U was such a failure. So, you know, and there was so many questions whether they would actually be able to recover after the Wii U. But I mean, man, have they recovered or what? I mean, they've just they've just come out and, and absolutely killed it. So yeah, I would say whatever comes next will just be a more powerful iteration of the Switch. But I don't necessarily think it's going to be like super computer right. powerful, right? I mean, I think they don't want to lose track of what's made the Switch so, so great. And, you know, you've got to take into account heat and thermals and battery life right. and all that stuff. So whatever whatever comes next will be, I'll say, a, a shot in the arm or a, maybe a 25 to 30% increase in performance. I think, you know, from a technical standpoint, the memory clock speed is probably the biggest bottleneck that they have. And if that's something that they decide that they, you know, want to boost, I mean, even that alone would would help many games, you know, run, run a little better. So, yeah, I mean... Stick stick with what what's with 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 what's working for you. I think that's what they they need to do, and I think that's what they'll do. My, my, my dream there is uh, is that they go with an SSD for, for their storage solution. Uh, I think that they I think that would be pretty expensive, but I mean, there's an SSD in, in iPhones. They yep. could maybe find a way to do a relatively small size, but still uh, keep it pretty fast. And uh, I think that would be a big boost to the way that whole thing worked. And, 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 and I mean, your point about the, you know, the thermals and the battery life, I think that they've been very smart to sort of um, – like when they got that extra processing power, when they did the revision of the switch original yeah. uh, and they didn't use that to boost the clocks or anything, or, or, or and then they didn't use it to increase power. They just used it, used it to increase battery life. They're in a really strong position to, if, if they do decide to increase power, they're going to be able to get a lot more without sacrificing battery life because uh, that these chips have come a long way since this system came out. And I mean, the Tegra was actually a couple years old when the switch launched. So mm-hmm. uh, th- there's a lot of power overhead there that they can tap into and then still kind of maybe also increase battery life at the same time. And and people are going to be expecting kind of what they've been getting on the switch. They're still not going to be expecting like full 4k. So I think Nintendo's done a really good job at positioning this whole platform for the future. And it's, it's got me excited to see what they're going to do next. Yeah. And if you ask any developer what, what they want in the next switch SSD, you know, is, is, is something important. Having that super fast loading obviously is, is very helpful, but I think the biggest bottleneck right now is, is Ram, you know, four mm-hmm. four gigabytes and you only have 3.2 right. available. You know, any developer that's working on the switch knows the pain of, of having that limited I mean, that sounds a little crazy that you've got four gigabytes and, you know, why Why would you run into issues? But, I mean, if you look at any kind of post-mortem of any big game that's come out on the Switch and and listen to, you know, developers talking about what was the biggest pain point, it's usually around, you know, memory uh, re- restrictions. That makes, that makes a ton of sense. I do remember I talked to... Uh 
uh, I can't remember the developer that did the, the Witcher ports still be my mind. Saber Interactive, Saber. I think. Saber Interactive, yeah, Saber, yeah. yeah, Saber did it. And um, yeah, and that, they mentioned that. That was like, they're like, oh yeah, we got it running. And it's like, uh, once we had to crunch it down to fit into that to that memory, it was, um, we, we lost a lot there. And we had to go kind of go back and rethink about how we were going to do this entire game. So yep. uh, they figured it out though. Uh, but yeah, it'd be nice to have that extra space for sure. MVG, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Well, hey, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on, Jeff. I know we usually have you on the Nate the Hate show, and, and I know you've been on the Spawncast a few times, so it's it's good to turn the uh, microphone the other way and, and and you know ask me questions for a change. It's been fun, yeah. man. I really I really enjoyed that. Absolutely. Uh, uh, you mentioned it. You know, Spawncast, uh, Nate the Hate show. Those are a couple of things that you're on uh, regularly. Anything else that you want to tell people, like where they can find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Modern Vintage G. I usually tweet once a day or so. I'm pretty active on there. And obviously my YouTube channel, I usually release a video once a week on some interesting topic. I never know what I'm releasing next. So don't ask because I'm literally like, and I think that's what makes my content so interesting is that I just don't have a roadmap of, you know, what's coming. Like I said, I, does, does everyone else have that? Because I certainly don't, you know what no. I mean? Now you said like, uh, if you try to ask a, uh a youtuber like what if their next video is going to be popular or whatever it's the same thing in my job too like i write <laughs> a story true. i have no idea if anyone's gonna read it or not it's impossible to predict so putting that stuff out there you just gonna you, you have to do what you find interesting and hope other people find it interesting as well and i think that's where, what you're doing well is the stuff you find interesting is actually very interesting so. yeah man you gotta have you gotta have passion for it if you if you do it because you think it's going to get a lot of views but you don't have you know you know it's not it's not inside of you it's not in your heart then it's just going to bomb. Absolutely. And that's, you know, a lesson I've learned as well, for sure. Um, All right. Yeah. Thank you to everybody out there for listening. I really appreciate it. I'll be back with another new episode next week. Until then, take care of yourself. Have a good one and goodbye.